This is Contact Mike. Hello. Hello. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, Doe. It's a podcast about the things that make us human. Moments of change, indecision and, well, well, contact. Contact. Contact Mike is a podcast by Sarah Walker. Excited about podcasts. And Flo Kilpatrick. That was my ears, not my mouth, that were the problem. It's produced by Kieran Ruffles. Okay, I think you're allowed to be interesting now. And it's going to start. It's going to start. Now. Now. Chapter one. Since we last spoke, a woman in Saudi Arabia turned a key in the ignition and started a car. Like, don't get me wrong, she's a rich lady, a privileged lady, but holy shit. When that engine started, her face, she was just a kid at her first driving lesson. Full of awe that her hands could do this and make the car do that. Since we last spoke, turtles. So many turtles have washed up on shore. The smell of them is incredible. Rotting in their shells. Since we last spoke, this baby has learned to hold her head up and her brother has learnt the word no. He's super into it. Feels like a big improvement from his already vigorous head shake. You do you, kid. Since we last spoke, tadpoles grew legs, leaves fell, seeds unfurled their hairy little fingers and reached them down into the earth like... So much shit has come and gone and grown and changed. Time, eh? Just a heads up, today's story contains discussion of intimate partner violence. Chapter 2 I was born and raised in Kuwait, uh, which is a small country in the Middle East. I was born just before the Gulf War and moved into Iraq with my family because we were Indian and moved back to Kuwait and lived there until I was about 13 years old. I feel like we just cycled through about 50 million amazing stories (laughs) in like one paragraph. This is Nithya. Nithya is amazing. By 26, she already had a PhD in Indian neoclassical dance. I used to say very young that I wanted to do a PhD in dance, though. I don't think I knew what it meant. <laughs> My dad told me that very smart people do PhDs in things they love, and so I used to go around saying it. It wasn't always an easy path. Dance isn't just the thing she loves. For a long time, it was her way out. Nithya's life and dance began in Kuwait. This is a small country squished between Iraq and Saudi Arabia. You can get from one end to the other in 45 minutes, and some of that is desert and uninhabited, so it's very small. But her dad just loved the place. He's more patriotic about Kuwait than he is about India. Um, To him, it's the land that gave him everything, I suppose. He comes from dire poverty, really. A small village in India, didn't have electricity growing up, shared toilet for the whole street, single parent. And he moved to Kuwait, and Kuwait 
pays well and it's where he built his entire life. He says everything that we're afforded is because he was able to live and build a life there. So he actually, he kissed the soil before he left. Once he was established in the country, he flew back to India to meet and marry a wife. He made up his mind pretty fast. Nithya's mum remembers him saying, I'm going for a beer, you have half an hour to decide. And as that beer was drunk, she decided, yes. What do you think your parents like about each other now? My mum loves that my dad gave up alcohol a few years ago. (laughs) I think it's, they committed, they both come from families that are broken, which is not typical in India. In India, you would, even if the marriage is really dysfunctional, you stick it out for society's sake. Um, But since they both come from broken homes, they committed to making it work. Nithya was born October 89 in Kuwait, and in August 91, the Gulf War screamed its way into the world. Um, My dad says you couldn't see a distance of even 100 metres because it was covered in thick black smoke because all the oil wells were burnt. The family fled the country they loved. But that same love brought them back to Kuwait at the end of the first war. It wouldn't be the last. War would return when Nithya was 13, but between these wars, Nithya was dancing. Can you maybe just, uh, for all of us idiots, explain what Indian classical dancing is? Sure. Technically, it's Indian neoclassical dancing. It's one of the forms, so I learned a form called Bharatnatyam, which is probably what's most widely practiced um, and is a huge cultural export out of India after Bollywood. It is heavily stylized and usually performed solo by women and the narrative is drawn from mythology, Hindu mythology. It tells the stories of gods and goddesses and demons and ghosts and gulls and one person occupies all of those different parts. And it's a huge combination of rhythmic patterns, hand gestures, facial expressions, layered with a narrative arc. Training is very demanding. Think years of classes almost every day before you can even step onto the stage. I remember the first time I got hit in dance class. Back in the day, it was common. I say back in the day, I'm only 28 years old, but (laughs) when I was young, it was common to get hit in dance class. And um, your teacher usually keeps rhythm with a wooden plank of sorts, and then there's a wooden stick, and she beats it. And that's how you are told time. So if you're doing with your foot, then she's like doing that to tune with a wooden stick. And so most of the initial steps in Bharatanatyam are done in what is plie in ballet in a half seated position and the seatedness has to be quite deep and your knees have to be turned out completely and if you're not turning your knees out enough and you're not sitting low enough it's called the aramandi the stance the half seated position which is the base position of Bharatanatyam you will get hit and you will get hit with a wooden stick and teachers have oh gurus have the aim of like basketball coaches and it will hit your ankle and I remember the first time because the pain radiates through your leg and the next time you think it's going to be painful to sit deeper you know that that pain's going to be worse and you make yourself so she threw it at you yeah I was very young I would have been about four 
And what was your response to that? How did it make just, you feel? Just sit deeper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll just sit deeper. So this sounds crazy to us, but Nithya doesn't think much of it. It's really not an individualistic society in the Indian diaspora. You, how you feel is not something I've ever been asked until I moved to the West. Hmm. How did that make you feel? It's not a consideration, really. Wow. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing either. Hmm. Um, I think there's too much of a reliance on how an individual feels rather than community in the West. Hmm. So, But pros and cons. Silly question, but how did you feel the first time you were asked how you felt? <laughs> Confused. Like, I just didn't even know what to say. I was like, somebody's asking me how I felt. How do I feel? Huh. Is it valid? Do I say it? Are they asking if I'm okay? I remember thinking if they're asking if I was okay, like, are they like, are you good? And then I was like, do I look tired? I just didn't even comprehend how to approach the question. So Nithya is dancing. She's sitting deep. Her knees are turning out. She's learning the finger architecture, the stories and the rhythms. When did you realise that you were good at it? Um, quite young. I moved to India when I was 13, which always sounds crazy to most people because they're like, what? Your parents just let you move when you were 13 but it was a few contributing factors I wanted to move to continue dance it was at around that age that I realized this is what I want to do with my life and I want to give it a red hot go which would involve moving to India Mm -hmm. and training and really sort of investing myself in it completely but it coincided with the time Saddam Hussein was alive then and was the threat of the second Gulf War so there were drills in school we all had canned food in our homes because of gas leak fears we had taped every possible window and door in all our homes schools had like a dug up underground area for students to go to and we'd have drills through the day there were lockout periods after 6 p.m. You were often not allowed to go out. So things were escalating. It was quite clearly going towards a war. And when you're that age, you don't really comprehend because there were these fears every few years that Iraq would hit and was all a bit of a laugh. But I think for parents who lived through the first invasion, it was very real. And so that coincided with the time of the threats building up. And when I said I wanted to move to India... My parents also wanted me to move to India because they were like, if she thinks it's her idea and she wants to get out of a war zone, Mm. good. Good for everybody. Moving to another country is full on for anyone. More so if you're a kid. Even more so if you're preparing to live alone for the first time. More so still if school is nine to five, five days a week and everyone is trying to get scores in the high 90s because India is crazy competitive and you're also studying every spare moment to become a professional dancer and you start training at 5.30 every morning. People always ask me if there was a huge culture shock in moving to the West, but my biggest culture shock was moving from Kuwait to India. It was Mm -hmm. huge. Yeah, India was being thrown in the deep end. You're suddenly in like one of the biggest cities is, you know, people everywhere you turn life is so fast-paced it was heavily polluted and there was just the the sexism was off the charts people will catcall they will whistle they will wink you will feel threatened and there's just that's accepted you can't escape it but it's also very 
it's second nature. Like you just think it's just part of life. You don't question it. Nithya is navigating this without family. But she isn't really alone because dance comes with a sort of inbuilt family. They gave you meals there, you just stayed there, you trained the younger kids. It was it was beautiful though. Like it was just such a sense of community and you were immersed in it completely. It's also a safe space in some ways. It's where you can talk about love and sexuality because mm-hmm. it is in the context of a fantasy world, whereas in society itself, in India today now, the needle's ticking very quickly. I noticed that 10 years, my juniors, people can talk about it to their families, but when I was growing up, it was not things you could ever talk about at home, maybe amongst your peers, but then in this fantasy world of dance, a lot of the narratives are, they're problematic as well, because they're often a woman either loving or longing for a male god, so don't get me wrong, it is problematic, but it was the first time you could unpack and explore desire Mm. and agency and things that were not acceptable to even utter in society. As far as Nithya was concerned, dating at 14 was not acceptable. But you did have a boyfriend. Yes. So where did you meet him? In school. We went to school together And a lot of my classmates did as well, but it would just be that none of our families knew and (laughs) you couldn't just go on dates um, too publicly. So what would a date look like? What would being in a relationship look like for you? A lot of hiding. (laughs) You just never want to run into anyone you know. Um, No teachers, no staff members, nobody from dance class nobody you know, no relatives, no friends' parents, not your local grocer, nobody who could be in the cab rank around your area, nobody could know. So if you can't go anywhere where there's anyone that you know, where do you go? You find your ways. Terraces, hidden parts of the beach after sunset, cars, you hung out a lot in cars, the drive-ins, <laughs> drive throughs And what was his name? Harsh, spelled like harsh, <laughs> and we hit it off instantly. He's very charming. I would still say he's very charming mm-hmm. on the surface, and he's friendly and very polite and speaks really well, and he's funny, and yeah, we hit it off instantly. It and all happened very fast. Did you imagine marriage and all of that with him? Oh, Yes. <laughs> I was completely certain that that would be the rest of our lives. It's in India, because there is in the concept of dating, then if you did, it's already transgressive. And then if you've made the transgression, then you often, especially as a teenager, think this is it. Mm. I transgressed for you. (laughs) Yeah, and we're going to tell our families. and It's all going to be so epic. Yeah. But then we'll make it. Your references are Bollywood, to be fair. Yeah. (laughs) The first year was very dreamy almost it's it's weird and then I went overseas to visit my parents in Kuwait for a few months it was the summer break and I think I went away for three months and he cheated on me and I still think one of the biggest mistakes I made was to forgive him when a lot of the school wouldn't and were very judgmental about it but I was like no it's okay I can I can look past this and so he became very dependent and after that it transitioned slowly into 
abusive behavior and I can't remember the exact moment of transition or when I started to let verbal insults go and when it started to escalate from that point because when it started it was very seemingly harmless not harmless it's still manipulative but it would just be oh shut up I can't even talk to you right now and hanging up the phone and that would escalate into calling me a bitch and a whore and a slut two rupee whore that was his favorite he insinuated that I was sleeping with my dad and things escalated and escalated and somehow I developed a kind of resilience to let the verbal stuff stop affecting me. I had reached a point where initially I used to break down and cry all night long and then I reached a point where I could absolutely let it come in through one year and take it out the other. It didn't have a bearing but I think that was dangerous because when he started to realize it did not have a bearing it escalated into physical abuse and initially that's really shocking when someone hits you for the first time stubs a cigarette on you or hits you with a belt it's painful it's shocking but there was a point when he was like I just need to get my frustration out and he used to come outside my apartment every single day and slap me every single day but because you 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 get a thick skin you really almost physically do it stopped mattering I was like oh yeah if it's like nine o'clock it's about the time he'll come over and slap me and it just got built into my daily routine It's over 3,000 kilometres from India to Kuwait, but even when Nithya's family were around, he managed to isolate her. My mum was home. I told her I'd be back. And this is often you're dealing with Indian family dynamics as well. She was visiting, and you can't tell her you're in a relationship. I was in high school. I have a curfew, so it's often negotiating that with your mum as well, So, which meant I always seemed so retaliatory as a teenager because I'm just trying to hold it all together. Mm. And so I was like, I'll be home in 45 minutes I'm going to dinner and he drove to the middle of the highway and then he just said get out of my car I fucking hate you your abusive words stream of flow um and then I begged though there's not many times I remember begging him I remember over the years being manipulative myself I would often resort to lies to just get out of the situation but I cried and I begged and I be- I went on my knees and I begged. I was like, please, I'll do anything you say. Just don't leave me here. How will I get back home? I will die. I'll do just, you know, please. Um, and cried and nothing, absolutely nothing. And he pushed me out of the car and he shut the door and he kept my phone and drove away. And it was just to prove, prove a point, you know, show his superiority. And I was on the highway and I was dead scared. It's um, that a lot of rape happens on highways. It's, it's true. Mm-hmm. India is one of the rape capitals of the world. And um, you only see highway trucks, really, transporting goods. And then uh, there was this family that stopped and picked me up. And there were these born-again Christians and they kept trying to convert me the whole ride back. But I've never been more grateful in my life. But then I had to wipe off the tears and hold it together, come up, say I lost my phone, sorry I'm late, and then have to like perform an entire excuse to my mother to not get into trouble. 
telling my parents was not even an option that I considered as a distant thought. It just yeah. wasn't. Like I considered enduring it. I even considered going to the cops. I considered telling school. I considered cheating on him. I considered running away. I briefly considered killing myself, but telling my parents was never an option. Wow. That's such a teenage thing, just like the most logical way out in a way. There is such a sense of trust that they put in me, and I was like, I just, this will break them. And I felt that they would be so disappointed in me for having dated that I just didn't think that I could ever tell them. Were you aware at the time that the relationship that you were in was unusual? That his behaviour oh, yes. was not normal? Yes. Mm. Yeah, very quickly. Mm. Right after maybe one and a half years, and at which point the abuse would have been for about six months. Mm. Yeah. I wanted out. I knew. Did you know anyone else in an abusive relationship? Yeah. Surprisingly many, actually, mm. in India. And did you talk about it with those people at the time? Bits and pieces. I was really ashamed of the sexual abuse, mm. so I wouldn't, because then in my head at the time, it involved me being tarnished and me having basically let a boy touch me or meant to be chased as an Indian woman. So there was a lot of shame around it, and I didn't know what was acceptable to say. That he also threatened me a lot with the conditions of what would happen if people found out. Mm. So there was a lot of fear as well. And he often said, this has to end Either you have to die or I have to die. We just want to take a moment to state the obvious. Nithya is still alive. She got out. She's here telling her story and in a few minutes she'll tell you how it ended and how she left India and you'll remember she now has her PhD and she's crushing it. You and me, grown-up Nithya, sitting here in the future, we can see the way out. But back then, child Nithya couldn't. But she could see reprieves, brief escapes to the one place he could not come, the dance studio. I always loved it, but became more of a dependency because it was that safe space. Mm. He knew I lived alone, so he could come home. We were in the same school. I saw him every day. But it was that one all-female space that he could not enter and you would not enter a guru's house no way Mm. so if I was in dance class between those three hours it was you cannot contact me by phone you cannot enter that space and it's actually like I can be immersed and lost in the art and in these characters and living these larger than life myths and you can't create a single crevice in that for me and so it became an escapism as well uh, but a complete immersion and also the only way to release some of that emotion as well because there were expressions of feeling cheated or feeling anger or deep-seated sadness and grief and loss and longing and injustice that you just as a woman that young are not allowed to express in contemporary society in India but in in the dance I could and they were almost my little secret it's like the only people that knew were me and my body eventually it was my best friend who got me out of it how um she was very sensible at the time I hated her for it but my mom was visiting from 
Kuwait at that point. He'd taken pills to kill himself. But I don't suspect it was to kill himself because he took a certain concoction that would just lead you to the hospital and have intense bouts of vomiting and draw attention rather than actually die. And I had a solo performance that night. So my mom was flying in that morning for the performance. I had a solo performance that night. He was admitted into the hospital the previous night. And my friend, best friend, her name's Gamu, she came over the previous night and she said, if you don't tell your mom, I'm going to tell your mom. I'll give you two days and if you don't, I will. And I don't care if you hate me for it. And she said, yes, your mom's not going to be stoked. But worst case scenario, she'll what? Take you out of school, move you back to Kuwait, yell at you for like an evening, not talk to you for a week. All of those situations combined is better than what you're going through on the daily. But then she's your parent. She loves you and she's an adult. None of us were adults yet. And she was like, she can she can get you out of it. We cannot. So this just needs to go to your mom and I'll be there for you, with you, when you tell her, if you like. And if not, I'm going to tell her. And I just remember remember sitting there being like, oh, you too. How could you? Like, you know, I have this show tonight and my life's going to shit and my mom's here and I don't know how to handle all of this and now my best friend's like betraying my trust. But it was the best thing she could have done for me. So did you tell your mum or did your friend? I told my mum. She was there with me. Nithya's mum had had a suspicion she was dating, but the abuse was an absolute shock. And her first response was she she started crying and then she got really mad and then she went into the bedroom and she banged the door shut and then she didn't talk to me for a few hours. Mm. And then I had to get ready and go do the solo performance. How was it? It's a blur, but I remember the final dance piece being about... It's about a god, Krishna. It's called the Kalinga Nardana and he basically conquers this snake in the water, and I just remember feeling such a sense of power in that moment, of being so completely immersed in the character, where I was like, I feel this, I feel the struggle, and I feel that I'm going to come out of it. That night, after the din and bustle and everything dies down and you're back, and it takes a long time to remove the hair and makeup of Indian classical dance, and it's like after that, I was in the room and then she came in and then she hugged me and then she started crying and she said a lot of it was apologetic she said I'm so sorry and I remember being really mad about it I was like don't make this about you Mm. it isn't about you like can you stop it's not a it's not your fault but b it's not about you um but I think I realize in hindsight it's um I think she felt a lot of guilt around the fact that she never saw it and also around the fact that Well, I grew up with a father that was alcoholic. And so she was like, did did you think that that's normal? Like, did you think Mm -hmm. love looks like this? And why didn't you feel you can come to me? And have I not been an approachable parent? And do you think that's normal? Like, do you think there is a facade to all relationships and it looks one way outside and behind closed doors it looks completely another and 
So she was, yeah, there was a lot of guilt. But then she was a legend. She eventually got me out of it completely. It just happened very quickly from there. So did she did she take you out of the country or out of the school or like? How? None of that. She went to his family. She called my uncle, who's like quite influential, and then got him to call. She went to his parents and she showed all his messages to them, like years, years worth of messages. And she called him downstairs from the room. He was upstairs in his room and she was like, I demand he comes down and looks at me, looks me in the eye and apologizes for how he treated my daughter and vows to me that he will never cross paths with her again. There are some amazing women in your story, not only you, but like, holy shit, your friend just being like, I don't care if you hate me, this is going to happen. Yeah. Your mum with your dad still back in Kuwait, barging in. He still doesn't know. Wow. Your dad doesn't my know. dad doesn't know. It's uh-huh. been a decade and he doesn't know. He probably never know. Huh. Because it's it's funny, like, how she used to always threaten going to my dad. Like, he would save these messages and he would email himself and then threaten to take those emails to my dad. But I think actually a lot of the reason that my mom didn't tell my dad, it's almost more for him. My, my dad would kill him. My dad would. He would be like, I'm fine going to prison. He would shoot a bullet through his head. At first, Harsh made a few attempts to reach her, desperate and hollow apologies. Nithya saw him once more in person. I don't think he even saw me. She heard from him a few times on social media. What what sort of contact was he making? Really strange contact. Like, he was like, oh, like we were just old buddies. Like, hey, I might be in Melbourne, so we should, like, hang. <laughs> but his life spiralled really badly. He um, was diagnosed of clinical depression, had a very, very troubled relationship with drugs, became an addict, Mm. has been in and out of rehab multiple times, got into dealing for a while, so things didn't look up. And I know I shouldn't, but I wish they do look up. Like, he's lost a decade of his life, and I hope for himself and for everyone around him, things can get better. So Harsh is gone, and it's time for Nithya to make a move. Leaving was very much my second chance at life as well. I was like, if I make it out of this, then I'm going to, I'm going to follow through with all the things that I've wanted to do. And because there were so many moments that I didn't think I would get out of it alive. She goes to Leeds to study. That was the first time I tasted freedom, mm-hmm. I think, truly. Even though the relationship had ended before that and there was a few years, there's still that impending fear. We had the same friend circle. When I drove, I always drove looking at the rearview mirror much more mm-hmm. than looking at the front. And if I got a call from an unknown number, like it could send me into such a state of anxiety. But when I moved to Leeds... It was just, I was like, I have left this life behind. It's done. You can't touch me. Like, I felt invincible. And I really embraced my life in the UK. It was great. It was, I just have such happy memories of it. She moved to Australia to do that thing that really smart people do about the thing they love. She got that PhD in neoclassical Indian dance. She has a great job. She has great friendships. She goes on great holidays. She's had some good and not so good relationships. The abuse has left its quiet marks on her. 
As we left the studio, she told us she'd been to an osteopath who, upon feeling the way her body seemed to protect itself, asked if she'd lived through war. And she has, but she thinks it wasn't that one when she was a baby that holds her body like this. But that same body can also do amazing things. When was the last time you danced publicly? In Newcastle in October. How did that feel? I love dancing. It's my mm. first love. It's, it's when I'm most, I think, in sync with the universe and myself and aligned with everything that's right. Chapter 3. To preface this chat, Mithya's story is her own. And we usually do start by sort of talking about and analysing the story we've just heard and then riffing off it. But we don't want to do that today. We don't want to put words in Nithya's mouth. So we're going to leave that to the side and we're going to talk about sex and relationships and all those things we like to talk about. But if today's story did bring up things for you, 1-800-RESPECT is a great place to start or, of course, there is always Lifeline. We care about you. What are the earliest pop culture examples of relationships that you guys can remember? Like what, what did you grow up thinking a relationship was supposed to look like? The first thing that leaps to mind is The Princess Bride, which is not terrible, but it has within it this idea that, you know, you just do whatever the other wishes, that their desires completely supervene your own. Mm. And, you know, if that includes going out and, you know, microdosing yourself with poison for a decade and, <laughs> you know, become turning yourself into a pirate, you know, so as to be able to win her back. You know, that's all that's all fine and normal. That's fine and dandy for, yeah. for romantic love. You know, you should you should definitely utterly transform yourself to please the other. Mm. Yeah, so even even a relatively harmless seeming love story like that can contain some pretty harmful messages, I think. I watched The Little Mermaid a lot as a kid. As I think a lot of children in my generation did, and I think a lot of bathrooms have been flooded by kids recreating the scene where Ariel comes up over the rock with the, the wave behind her. And when I think about it, that's a very problematic demonstration of what it is to love somebody, that you have to give up something so fundamental to yourself. It's kind of what you were saying with The Princess Bride, Karen, this idea that you totally destroy the things that are important to you for the love of some guy who is objectively an idiot and who's busy like gallivanting with some sexy evil lady. What is that teaching kids that you're meant to do in order for someone to love you? Mm. And also you should be able to convince him with just your silent beauty <laughs> that you are the right choice without making any kind of conversation. Yeah. <laughs> it's all part of this um, these narratives of grand gestures which Hollywood is so full of. My first boyfriend was very demonstrative in that way. Like he asked me out by getting some friends and they did a song in three-part harmony which ended with them kind of jazz handing and being like so is it a yes and I was like oh uh, yep I'm sure but like where was the space for me to have an opinion in, in, in that gesture. I remember this one time we'd fought. I can't remember what about but I remember that I was really upset and I got home and he was sitting on my front porch with a guitar he didn't, he didn't really play the guitar and he was kind of strumming the guitar and, and performed this spoken word sort of piece about how we were stronger than this and he knew that we could overcome this and he loved me and I was like, I had this sudden arresting moment of being like, this is not for me. This is for you to make you feel better about making me feel shit but I don't want you to play the guitar 
I want you to sit down and tell me that you understand why I'm upset at you and we're going to talk about how we're going to make it different. And our relationship was kind of peppered with those sort of moments. We don't teach people how to be in a functional relationship. We don't teach people any of the skills to do with having awkward, heavy, hard conversations and negotiating them in a way that doesn't just involve you breaking up, that allows you to say, look, there's actually something I need to talk about. When you do this, I feel terrible because, and actually when we have sex, this doesn't work for me. And hey, I was wondering if I can ask you this really heavy, hard awkward intimate question and like I'm in a relationship now where we're we're really good at that but it's still terrifying every time is still terrifying and we're just not taught those skills you just sort of have to learn them accidentally and if you're not ever in a good communicative relationship you kind of never you never learn them I think something that comes up in relationships is this idea that hardship is something that you're meant to overcome that there's going to be these hard moments and, you know, you work together and that you come out the other side stronger. That can actually absolutely be the way that things are. But I think that having that belief about relationships can sometimes be exploited. It can be taken by unscrupulous people as a way to sort of go, well, yes, of course, this this situation that I've put you in is terrible mm. and you just need to find us a way out of it or we together are going to find our way out of it, but love is meant to be hard and it's love's fault that things are bad for us now, not the fact that one of us is being badly behaved. Mm. That's something that is a really pervasive belief in relationships that can be exploited to some pretty evil ends. Mm. I've had this thought sometimes in in relationships when when things have been hard as well of going you know I, I yeah I know relationships are meant to be hard but but how hard is too hard there's not a clear definitive line for most of us where we say oh that's the point mm. that's where we have to step away I think it can be quite insidious it's, it's this gradual ramp up of like oh that's hard oh that's getting a little hard oh yeah that's that feels wrong, but um, but you know, <laughs> push through this hard time, and then one day you look around and realize that it's all hard time. It reminds me of a conversation I had uh, with a friend in a previous relationship, where I sort of said, "Look, I know that I've said I wouldn't put up with this, this X, Y, or Z behavior. Clearly, I was lying because I am putting up with that." Mm. And clearly I, I, I was wrong because I will and I do and I am currently putting up with that. So I don't actually know where my limit is. I thought I did. I was able to articulate where I thought my limit was. And then I just, I just let that limit be walked straight over. Mm. So it can be hard even when you think you know where it is mm-hmm. to stick to it. So Sarah, mm. if you have a kid, what do you want them to know about relationships I think part of my terror about this is part of the reason I'm pretty keen on the idea of not having a kid I think that I would want them to know that one of the most important skills is the ability to listen and that's a skill that you need to have but it's also a skill that you need to look for if being around a person doesn't make you feel awed 
and excited and validated and cared for and heard and respected, then that's not a person you should be having sex with. If a person can have an argument with you about which burger to get or what their political beliefs are and they can listen to you and understand you and and come to a point of compromise and understanding, then maybe that's a person who might be an all right person to trust with your body and with your heart. But I think... I think listening to that little voice inside your gut, which is going... I don't feel good. It's easy to mistake feelings of newness and excitement for being pleasurable and for being safe, but I think it's important to learn that when someone doesn't respect you, there's a tiny little alarm bell, and I think we all need to get better at hearing that. Mm. Kieran, mm. do you want a kid to know? Maybe uh, that one of the things that feels the nicest is making someone else feel good. That's one of the greatest joys. It's one of the greatest pleasures. So what that creates is this interesting inversion. You want to be with someone who understands that as well because they're going to be nice to be with. But then it flips upside down again and it means that the more you know what you like, the more of a good time the people you're with will have and and people will enjoy being with you and everyone will have a good time. Um, So you kind of have to know that giving is a really great pleasure and you have to know what you like really well so that you can give that to other people. I think that's true not only of sex but also of relationship dynamics more generally. I think when you can be like, I know that for me words of affection are very important and physical displays of affection are maybe less important. It helps you teach someone how to love you. And I think we yeah. are kind of told that we people just know how you need to be treated and it's it's not true and we all need really different things. So when you can know what you need in order to be loved and ask someone and learn what someone else needs in order to be loved, that's part of how a good functional relationship can begin to form. Yeah, yeah. What about you, Fleur? I think kindness is the biggest thing. <laughs> My parents have been married a crazy long time and... I remember going to a wedding with my dad. My mum couldn't go, so I went to my cousin's wedding with my dad. And But we had a little thing at the table saying, like, what words of advice do you have for us as we begin our marriage? And I was like, well, I don't know. Let's call mum. <laughs> um, and so we called my mum. We had my mum on speakerphone. And, and she was just like, just kindness. Just be kind to each other. And also just, like, have your own life. Mm. I think that's important as well, those things. I don't know why I did that voice for my mother. She's not quite like that. (laughs) The kindness, having your own life, but also I, I value so much having a partner who is excited by my achievements Mm. and I'm excited by, by your achievements, Karen. And, and I, I think I can't think of anything worse than being in a relationship where one person is resentful mm. of that or doesn't understand what you want to achieve and you know and Sarah you and I we're both ambitious go-getty women who mm. get out there and make shit and mm. I just so 
I'm so excited for this generation of women who see that as the norm and for this generation of men who have grown up seeing women getting out there and making shit. And, yeah, I want to raise raise kids that are, like, all over that, that mm. are all over just living life really hard <laughs> with someone who cheers them on. So we reckon this might be our last episode of this show. You may have noticed that our um, our episode release schedule has slowed <laughs> yeah. a little. Mm. <laughs> Turns out it's really hard to make a podcast of this production quality with a team of three on no money when we all have other jobs. We are so proud of what we've made and we may return to it. We love making work together. We've got another idea, which we'll be telling you about. So stay connected with us on social media. And we might even post the first one in um, Contact Mike's uh, stream as well so that we can direct you to where to find us to the new project. But just know the new project is going to be smaller, more deliverable, (laughs) and just like take into account our super crazy lives. That's the plan. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for coming along on the ride. We've had a ball. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Kieran. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Flo. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah. (laughs) This has been Contact Mike. This episode episode ends ends now. That was a self five. (laughs) That's just a clap. You guys were going to be there for it. It's too far away across the desk to do a high five. Wi-Fi. (laughs) Wi-Fi.